1: Good morning! It is Wednesday, September 4th, 2019. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today in the second part of our show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Taylor Marshall, a Catholic author. He's also a graduate from Texas A&M. And Taylor holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Dallas. I like the dissertation title, Thomas Aquinas on Natural Law and the Twofold Beatitude of Humanity. Uh, We won't be talking about that, though. We're going to be talking about his book, Infiltration, the Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. But first, as always, we want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn, Bryan College Station. And also, hello to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena, Waco, and then also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. I'm joined in the studio this morning by our intrepid general manager, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? Good morning, Deacon Mike. Thanks for letting me uh, tag along. Excited. my pleasure. And also, uh, Dennis is handling the production things, so we actually have the president in the studio keeping good us in line. Good morning, Dennis. How good are morning, you? Good morning, fellas. I'm doing just great. Great, great, great. Glad to have uh, you two in the studio handling things while I can push the buttons. It's uh, always best that I stay off the mic, so I, I wasn't prepared to even say good morning, so thank you for allowing me some mic time. Well... Uh, <laughs> I think it's always uh, nice to say good morning to the people that you like.
2: <laughs>
1: and, uh, and why did you go to Thaddeus first then?
2: <laughs>
0: oh, Anyways, uh, go
1: on, go on with the show. I'm gonna, this is, okay. this is okay.
0: It's going to be one of those things. Huh? I'm
1: going to mute my own mic now. This is why we don't let him on the air. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, coming up the Red Sea Benefit dinner. And um, if you haven't made plans to go yet, Get on the website and uh, reserve a table or reserve a seat and uh, make sure you join us. Our uh, speaker is uh, Franciscan Father Albert Haas, who is the um, spiritual director out at uh, Cedar Break Retreat Center. And if you have not heard him speak, you have missed out. He's a wonderful speaker and he's going to be the keynote for the benefit dinner this year. So make plans to join us and um, get ready for a great evening of entertainment, of community, and of helping the radio station, because it's yes, important sir. for our listeners to help support us, because that's how we stay on the air.
0: Yeah, we're going to be uh, giving, giving thanks. It's going to be sort of an, an early Thanksgiving dinner meal and theme, and we're primarily giving thanks for our donors, our supporters, our one-time donors, those people that that maybe give that little bit of extra that they have one month, all the way up to our regular monthly Immaculata Society members who give of their um, want to each and every month to our underwriters and to our table sponsors and some of our our folks who who give us kind of foundational gifts to get the station here in Bryan College station on, on its feet, to raise the tower in Waco. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think it's important to keep that perspective in mind that not only is this a fundraiser for the radio station, it is a wonderful way to say thank you to the people that help support the radio station. And so we have a fun evening, we have food, we have drink, we have speakers but we have the opportunity to join together with people that benefit from the radio station, that support the radio station, and that love their radio station. And so.
0: Yeah, and it, it's really about also, like you said, Deacon Mike, building those bonds of um, familiarity and uh, filial connection, you might say, between the people who support the radio station and. Uh, there's always a great buzz in the room and uh people leave the night, even though they've opened up their checkbooks, they feel like they've uh they've opened their hearts to one another and uh and had some some
1: good camaraderie. And uh It always uh, forces me to remember that uh Eucharist, the source and summit of our faith, is literally Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's right. So um, I like the theme of the benefit dinner.
0: Well, thank you. We glad we're glad we got your on-air approbation for the for the theme.
1: But I also stuck that in there for a segue into the next part of what I was going to ah, talk about. I see
0: what you did there.
1: <laughs> um, if you haven't got plans yet here in the Bryan College Station area on Saturday morning from nine to eleven. At St. Anthony's Church, there'll be a presentation on the Mass. We're not going to have Mass. We're going to walk through the Mass and try to explain some of the things that you may not have realized the meaning behind them as you see them in the Mass. And so um, it's a short two-hour period where we go and try very hard uh, to explain the things that we may not all the time appreciate when we are at Mass, and that help us to take that active participation that we're called to in Mass. So uh, if you don't have plans yet, come join us. There's no RSVP necessary. Just come by the church at St. Anthony's at 9 o'clock in the morning. and This Saturday? This Saturday, September 7th. 9 a.m., okay. 9 a.m., and there was one other thing I was going to talk about this morning, and we do our Saint of the Day segment. And um I wanted to talk a little bit about the Saint of the Day from yesterday, Saint Gregory the Great. We need to
0: get some music for that little segment. Don't you think we need a little Saint of the Day music or something like some Gregorian chant or maybe some Oh uh,
1: Do you know somebody that could work on that? I might know somebody. Okay. Uh but talking about St. Gregory the Great, um, when the Roman emperor, uh, emperor left Rome for Constantinople and uh, sort of left the governance of Rome in chaos, mm. uh, most of the governance fell on the papacy. Yeah, And uh, St. Gregory the Great never wanted to be pope. He was at first a government <laughs> He's in official. a long line of people yes. <laughs> who didn't want to be Pope. He was a government official, and he gave that up to become a monastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got basically drugged back, kicking and screaming to Rome uh, to take over the papacy. And uh, in part because he understood government, he... But the fascinating thing about St. Gregory the Great is how humble and charitable he was. Uh, One of the stories that uh, is told about him, um, because of the state of the government, uh, there was poverty throughout the city, and he would send bishops and priests and monks out into the city to feed the poor and it is said that he would never sit down to eat until the monks returned from passing out the food to the poor mm. but also uh he was a uh he took the lowest
0: place in a in a sense
1: very much so and uh so he also is responsible for where we have the our father in the mass he uh, restructured the mass mm. while he was pope and uh, he is also the person Gregorian chant is named after. That's right, that's right. And uh, Gregorian chant is a simply plain chant that has been named after uh, Pope Gregory the Great, but also it is, according to Sacrosanctum Concilium, holding pride of place of all music in our liturgy, which we don't see so much anymore because very few people can still... Sing Gregorian chant well, but it's really not that difficult, and I would like to see it take more prominence in the Mass as it is supposed to.
0: You know, they, one of the neat things they've been doing here at St. Mary's during daily Mass is they have a they have a small men's choral, and yes. they're they're introducing Gregorian chant into the the daily Mass uh, yes. a lot more. Uh,
1: we have had them at St. Anthony's, and uh, they sound wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to go straight into the. Uh, interview. So uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Taylor Marshall on the air. And um, Dr. Marshall, how are you this morning?
2: Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me
1: on. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. And now there is a dire title if I ever heard one. <laughs> That's right.
2: Are you, I, you guys are recording from College Station, right?
1: That's right. Yes.
2: Yes, I'm an Aggie. Did you know that? Yes, yes I mentioned did. that at yeah, the we very that. beginning we of the whooped, show. We whooped okay, for good. you. <laughs> Sorry about that. No. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, good. Class of 2000.
0: Yeah, but you were, you, were on, you were on the other team when you were, when you were here at uh, A&M, right? You were not in the Catholic Church yet, correct?
2: That's right. I was a Protestant. In fact, uh, I once came to St. Mary's there in College Station, and I had the ultimate, I thought, uh, refutation of Catholicism. I, I found a priest. And I said, I know that you Catholics don't really believe in transubstantiation. And he kind of laughed. And I, he said, well, why is that? I said, if you were, if you really believed it, you wouldn't wash the chalices uh, in a building because that means droplets of what you believe the blood would go down in the sewer, and that'd be sacrilegious. Mm. And he said, follow me. And he took me into the <laughs> <a> sacristy, <laughs> and he showed me. See, he, he, he the two two sinks. I said, yeah. I go that sink, we wash normal things, and that goes in the sewer. This sink right here goes into the ground for the chalices. I mean, you Catholics have thought of everything, <laughs> you
0: know? <laughs> so Did you know it was like only that. a matter of time at that point?
2: No, I didn't. I was, I was frustrated, though. I was probably 20 years old, Yeah, and I, I had worked out this great refutation of Catholicism, and I was stumped right there at St. Mary's in College Station.
0: Before we get started with talking about the subject of the book, can you really, really, really briefly give us your, the rest of that story, how you, how you became Catholic?
2: Sure. I, uh, you know, I, I was at A&M. I was a philosophy major, and uh, I, I minored in Latin and Greek there at Texas A&M, and I was going to go into seminary. I was going to become an Episcopalian priest. And I, I had kind of travailed, you know, moved around a whole lot, trying to figure out what the true church was while I was at A&M. Uh, a lot of Bible churches and Campus Crusade and Navigators and the whole evangelical spectrum there. Um, but after I left AM, uh, I went to seminary, and I eventually became an Episcopalian priest. And, um, you know, really the pro-life issue, I was doing a lot of pro-life work. My wife, who I met, she went to Baylor. We had both uh, agreed before we were married that contraception was wrong. So we were already kind of Catholic in that way. And at that point, it was a matter of time. So uh, after I had been Episcopalian priest for a short time, uh, I renounced those orders and came into the Catholic Church. Uh, as a layman, and I've been a layman ever since. Uh, just you know, teaching theology and philosophy, and and uh, love love being a Catholic. Greatest greatest gift ever. The pearl, great Prize.
1: Just curious on my part, uh, how much did the singularity of Catholic teaching compared to. The Episcopalian Church, especially on like life issues, where you have you know perhaps one congregation that's stoutly pro-life and another congregation that sort of on the fence and another one that is clearly pro-choice. Did that play anything in a, a, in any way into your decision? It did. I, I
2: remember preaching a sermon uh, as an Episcopalian priest against uh, abortion and. Someone, you know, a prominent layperson say, hey, you know, you're doing a great job. Love what you're doing and I'm pro-life, too. But I think your sermon makes some people uncomfortable. It kind of gets into the realm of politics and you need to knock that off. And so I remember thinking, man, if I can't preach thou shalt not kill from the pulpit without flack, I'm I'm at the wrong place. You know, I need an encyclical. I need a rock. I need a magisterium Mm -hmm. that I can hold up to, to lady and say, no, this is the teaching of Christ, this is the teaching of the Church, and we have to not only believe it, but we have to preach it.
0: Well, Taylor, we need to get you back here to AM to to talk to the Aggies, and then we've got a radio station in Waco broadcasting to those Baylor Bears, so we need to get your wife over there yeah, to talk to the those be Baylor great. Bears. So we'll work I'll on that.
2: that. I'd love to do it. Yeah. All right, awesome. I've been down many times to speak there, and I'd, I'd love, to, love to come back and do it again.
1: Before we get into your book, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back on the other side of this break with Dr. Taylor Marshall talking about infiltration, the plot to destroy the church from within. We'll be right back. All this I can I am. I was in the and we're back, and as promised on the Red Sea Roundup this morning, we're going to be talking to Dr. Taylor Marshall about his book, Infiltration, the Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Welcome back, Dr. Marshall. Uh, why did you write this book? What impelled you to say, hey, what we really need right now is someone to take a look at what's going on in the church with an honest perspective and interpret some of these things that are happening with a different view?
2: Well, you know, I love our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the Catholic Church. Um, I want to be proud of being a Catholic. I want my kids to grow up uh, safe in the Catholic Church. You know, it's embarrassing as a father when these scandals come up to, you know, talk to your teenage kids and and, um, to let them know some of the things that are going on in the church, like, you know, we learned last summer with with ex-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. And so, as a convert, as someone who loves the Catholic Church, I wanted to understand, how did we get to this place? You know, sometimes, you know, when you're really sick, just getting a diagnosis, no matter how bad it is, can be a relief to people, because they realize, okay, we've uh, we've now defined what the problem is, we can begin working on a solution. And so, I just wanted to define the problem and figure out how we got this, got to where we are. You know, we've seen you know scandals in the USCCB with individual bishops, of course, McCarrick. Uh, we saw the Viganò letters that started coming out about a year from, from today, a year ago. Uh, we've seen scandals internationally in the church. We've seen scandals in Rome, um, and there's just a lot of confusion. You know, we just saw that uh, report that came out that says up to seventy percent of American Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And so, you know, some people say, oh, it was because Benedict resigned or, oh, it was because of the fruits of Vatican II or it was Vatican II. You know, there's all these different theories and I wanted to figure out what exactly happened. And as I did my research, I realized it doesn't just go back to 2013. It doesn't just go back to the 80s or even the 60s or even Vatican II, that what we've really seen is an active infiltration of the church going back to the 1840s. And there's always been infiltrations, you know, going back to the days of Judas. And, you know, usually when you look at crises of the church, whether it's heresy like Arianism, uh, the leaders in it were, were priests and bishops. Usually when we have something really bad happen in the church, it's an inside job. You know, the, the Reformation wasn't from the outside, it was from the inside. It was Martin Luther, a priest, and then bishops and, and clergy who supported him. Over time, so I want to understand our current crisis. As I began doing this research, I saw that there was a concerted effort beginning in the 1830s, 1840s. Uh, we saw popes—Pope Gregory the Sixteenth, Pope Pius the Ninth, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and Pius the Tenth—all these popes throughout the 1800s, moving into the 1900s, warning the bishops, warning the faithful, saying there is an attack from the inside of the church, and this. It's not just papal warnings, but it's Marian apparitions, Our Lady of La Salette, then Our Lady of Fatima. And then also, you know, the the vision of of St. Michael and the demons, uh, what became the St. Michael prayer that Pope Leo XIII composed. And he asked for it to be prayed at the end of every low mass. So you see supernatural things. uh, You see prudential judgments. All of this is happening in the 1800s. And really, it doesn't come to fruition until the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s. And I think a lot of us kind of know the end of the story, but we don't know the beginning. So this book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within, is really a historical lesson um, looking at the crisis from, from the vantage point of 200 years.
1: I find it interesting that uh, I believe it was just today that Cardinal McCarrick, came out publicly to proclaim that he's not near as bad as people are making him out to be, which I find kind of interesting. Uh, Yeah, he
2: he did that first interview. It came out, I believe it came out yesterday afternoon. And uh, yeah, he he essentially denies everything or says, I don't remember any of that. (laughs) So, you know, it's sad that the Holy Father's placed them into a life of prayer and penance, but you can't do penance unless you admit what you've done is wrong. And that's fundamentally the problem in this case.
1: Another question, who did you perceive as your intended audience for this book? Now, not everybody's going to read this uh, because, you know, some people are going to read that title, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within, and they're going to go conspiracy theory and not read it at all. But would you encourage everyone to read it? And who was your intended audience for this?
2: The intended audience is the Catholic in the pew. It's everyone. Everyone. Uh, I think most of us have had a little bit of a gut check since last summer, uh, since McCarrick, since Vigano, and, and even Vigano's accusations against not just Theodore McCarrick, but even the Pope, Pope Francis. And this is divided Catholics, and there's a lot of confusion about it. And I think that we need to take a step back and realize this is not just a contemporary problem, but it's been something that's been boiling and brewing and fermenting for a, a very long time. And I, I think when people read the book, and they read the last two chapters, which is what do we do now? How do we how do we rebuild? Um, how do we grow? How do we heal? I think they'll be very encouraged. Uh, again, this is this is not a conspiracy theory book, there is no theory of a conspiracy in this book. It's just a sequence of historical events, coupled with papal statements. So You'd have to if, to say that nothing was going on in the 1800s. You ha, you would have to say Gregory the 16th, Pius the Ninth, Leo the 13th, and Pius the 10th were just wrong. I mean, you could say that. You know, you could say that they were they were worried about something that wasn't there. But all of them are gravely worried about uh, heresy, corruption, liberalism, modernism within the seminaries and within uh, the episcopate.
1: Now, when you uh, started looking at this, the research for this book, and started looking at some of these things that tied together, did you have an aha moment that, you know, there was a pattern here? Or did you come into it already from the beginning thinking there must be a pattern of this before you started doing your research? you know
2: i came into it uh, i think i think a lot of people uh, as i said the issue they they they're able to to put their finger on the 1960s you see so many changes uh, in the liturgy you know after 1965 after vatican II closed there were so many changes we saw the convents you know decrease by in america you know by over 50% uh, we saw a decrease in vocations we saw a decrease in in catholic marriages decrease in interbaptism, baptism all these decreases. And so most people, and I think myself going into the research, assumed, oh, well, we're going to find uh, all the rot in the 1960s in the Second Vatican Council. But as you as you begin to study the 1960s and you begin to study the Second Vatican Council, then you begin seeing that, that things are happening, uh, pieces on the chessboard are moving, uh, in the 1950s, in particular, 1955, 1951 and 1955. And then you start saying, okay, well, where do these guys come from? And you get into the forties and you keep going. And then you, you know, you end up in, you know, 1831, 1846, and you have, you know, Pope Gregory the 16th. And he's talking about, you know, here's his words, the abominable conspiracy against clerical celibacy, end quote. You know, that's not Taylor Marshall's words. That's a Pope in the 1830s talking about a conspiracy, an abominable conspiracy against clerical celibacy. He also talks about, uh, the conspiracy to destroy the indissolubility, ind, indissolubility of marriage. Uh, he also talks about placing the person's conscience abo- above all dogma. That's a great error. And so these are the things that, that we are struggling with as Catholics in 2019. And yet we have a Pope talking about this over 100 years ago. And so you realize this has been a long game uh, by the enemies of Christ. And it, it kind of goes back to the French Revolution. You know, from from the time of Nero all the way up into the French Revolution, the enemies of Christ were attacking the Catholic Church from without. They'd say, that bishop has a lot of power, let's kill him. That pope has a lot of power, let's kill him, let's kidnap him. That's what Napoleon did. And what happens is, is, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You persecute the church, the church grows. You kill a holy bishop, the faithful find his bones, put them in an altar and build an enormous basilica and honor him. And so after the French Revolution, into the beginning of the 1800s, the enemies of Christ, they finally wised up. And they said, you know, we can't just keep attacking the church from the outside, like, you know, a battling ram against the walls of the church. We need to infiltrate. We need to put people who think like us in the seminaries, in the monasteries, in the convents, in the episcopate, in the College of Cardinals, and that we will slowly, and they even state this, If you read the uh, permanent structure of the Alta Vendita, the whole document is in my book uh, in the appendix, but also quoted. They say that this could take over a century. So it's a long game, and it's a game of infiltration, of steady erosion of Catholic conviction for doctrine and Catholic conviction for morality. I think if you look around in 2018, 2019, you see that not only in the lady, but even in the hierarchy, you see an erosion of doctrine and an erosion of morality.
1: Again, we're talking to Dr. Taylor Marshall about his book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Uh, You mentioned the Alto Vendido*. Would you explain a little bit what this is? Sure, this was a a
2: document that was written by the Italian Carbonari. The Carbonari were a secular humanist uh, secret society They were opposed to monarchy, they were opposed to the papal states, and they were opposed to the pope having any uh, political rule and against the dogma and the morality of the Catholic Church. And they wrote this document called the Permanent Instruction, and it was a game plan uh, by which they would be able to infiltrate the church and have what the, the exact wording there is a revolution in tiara and cope. That's referring to the pope's hat and his cape. And they're saying, look, we can never get the pope or cardinals or bishops to, to come over to our side. They're not going to just openly renounce their Catholicism and say, hey, I, I like what the secular humanists are saying. So what we'll do is we'll go in and we'll go into their institutions and we'll target. It said in the permit, it says forget the older people in the middle aged. go for the young, go for the adolescents and begin to exchange firm Catholic convictions on faith and morals and begin to replace them with secular humanist ideals. All religions are equal. Uh, a, A distrust for the supernatural, for the miraculous, begin to sow these seeds. And as you do this with the youth and with the young seminarians, and with the young religious, over time they will teach others And after a hundred years, I use the word a century, century. after a century, you'll begin to see a true change within the Catholic church. So this is all laid out in this document. Uh, This document was acquired by Pope Gregory the 16th. His successor, Paul, uh, sorry, Pius the ninth, asked for it to be published so that people would know about it. And his successor, Leo the 13th, also published the document. He wanted Europeans in particular. He wanted Italians to know that this document was being circulated and this was their plan. So we have two popes who were promoting, not the document, what it taught, because what it taught is ungodly and anti-Catholic, but he wanted Catholics to know that this was happening in Europe. And so, again, Pius IX, Leo XIII were the ones who were trying to sound the alarm for Catholics on this insidious plan to infiltrate the Church.
1: Now, one of the things you were uh, have been talking about is this planned out infiltration of the church by secular humanists, Freemasons, and uh, in the book, especially uh, emphasis on the Freemasons. But, for instance, in 1983, the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith published a declaration on Masonic association. Uh, and so there were still elements in the church recognizing this and opposed to it, weren't there? In
2: 1983. Yes. Oh, yes. Remember, this is, this is not—it's uh, not as simple as to say every single priest, every single bishop, every single cardinal. Uh, this is a small minority in the church who's trying to bring about change over time. Also note that that being stated means that there was a problem with people being both Trying to be both Catholic and Freemason as late as 1983.
1: Oh, we still have that today.
2: <laughs> we still have it today, yeah. There's, <laughs> there, there, there's, a, there's a, a priest in Australia bragging about how he's a, a high ranking Mason and a Catholic priest, and he's in good standing right now in Australia. That just came out two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and so this is, I mean, this, Freemasonry, pe- you know, people hear Freemasonry and they go, oh, you know, tinfoil hat, conspiracy theory. So we need to just kind of define what Freemasonry is. So back in the 1700s and in the 1800s, if you were against um, Catholicism, if you were against the idea that the Pope has jurisdiction over every political realm on earth, that's a bold statement, but the Pope's always taught it. I, in a sense, it's still in the books. If you were against that idea, you couldn't go onto, you know, they didn't have it, but Twitter or Facebook or write a pamphlet, or go out in the public square and say, I'm against this medieval arrangement right, of, the, of the hierarchy in the Catholic Church, basically the way Europe had been arranged for hundreds of years. I'm against this. Guess what would happen to you? You'd go to jail. You'd be killed. And so the men who were very intelligent, I'm not saying that they were right, they were wrong, but these men who were very intelligent, very well-trained at the right universities, who were thinking and saying these things, had to meet in secret to discuss and write these elements of overturning the old world and bringing about what they call the Enlightenment, getting rid of the Dark Ages, bringing in the light, the, the, light, the Enlightenment. And so they would meet in secret societies. And in England and America, these were known as Freemasons. Again, they have different names in different countries. Uh, in Italy, as I mentioned, they're called the Carbonari. But these are secret societies, and it's, it's not like they're meeting together and, and sacrificing chickens or anything like that. They're meeting together to discuss subversive political and theological plans for the West. And that's why they're called secret societies. And, and we in America and in England know them as Freemasons. They go by different names. That's why I prefer saying secular humanist secret societies. And yes, these men we know are trying to subvert Catholic monarchs, Catholic republics, Catholic politicians, bishops, cardinals, and of course the Pope. This is a matter of fact, I mean, just open up a textbook, uh, read any anything going on from before the French Revolution, all the way up until uh, the Russian Revolution 1917, you can see every single Christian nation is being attacked uh, and revolutions are happening everywhere. So this is going on and it ultimately goes from outside the church and goes within the church.
1: One of the things you point to in your book is that some of this can be shown to find fruitfulness in Vatican II, that some of these mindsets were introduced into some of the documents in Vatican II. Does this mean that there's nothing beneficial in Vatican II, or how would you view that?
2: So, you know, one of the things that, that we see in the Second Vatican Council is an openness to the modern world. Uh, this is repeated uh, in the documents. It's uh, repeated by Paul VI and by many of the council council fathers who were there. And and there was a little bit of, of resistance to this because, um, you know, we're to be in the world and not of it. There's also a a... Emphasis on the the nature, the 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 dignity of human nature, apart from grace and apart from salvation, and finding goodness in truth in other religions. Now, unfortunately, if you look at the principles of secret society, these are things that that they wanted to endorse. They wanted all religions to be easy, because I mean, equal not easy. Uh, One of the things that secular humanists believe is that all religions are equally true and equally false. It's like when you go to a kindergarten class and you tell the kids, everybody draw a picture of God. And you know some kids will draw a cross, some kids will draw a cloud, some you know, kids will draw the sun or a field or their family. And for the, for the secular humanists, they say all of those are wrong and all of those are right. They're just children trying to understand, to reach for, who or what God is. This is how secular, this is how Oprah, this is how, you know, your political leaders understand God and religion. They're all just sort of out there and we kind of give everybody an A, and there's no such thing as this religion is true and this religion is false. And all, of course, Vatican II didn't come out and say that explicitly, but there is since the council, the if you want to call it the spirit of Vatican II, uh, or or the fruits of Vatican II, there is the idea that we don't need to go to India and preach the gospel and baptize thousands of people like St. Francis Xavier. We just need to affirm them to be good Hindus. Or we don't need to go to the Middle East and proclaim Christ like St. Francis of Assisi did, that, Christ, that salvation is through Christ. We just need to affirm Muslims as good Muslims. And that's kind of been, since the 1960s, more and more of a default position of Catholicism, whereas Prior to that, uh, that would not have been the emphasis. And so I, don't, I think we really need to look at what are the fruits and, and what are the spirit uh, of Vatican II and, and ask ourselves, have we become more faithful? Has, uh, say, for example, belief in the Eucharist increased or decreased? Are vocations across the board up or down? Is mass attendance every Sunday, 52 Sundays a year, plus holy days of obligation, is that attendance up? Or is it down people getting married in the church up or down? And regretfully, when you actually look at all the numbers and all the numbers are in infiltration uh, for this whole time period, you see that every single demographic, I'm not exaggerating. Every single demographic is down. The only one that goes up is annulments, which is a bad, bad movement. You don't want to, you know, and divorce, divorce and annulments are up. All the other measurements, are down. And so something has happened. You know, if, if this were, if this were Coca-Cola and all of your sales were consistently down and continually down for decades, you would begin to have to ask your question about why is this the case? Why is, why is it that our people are no longer firmly attached to our scripture and our tradition and our liturgy and our morals and our customs?
1: Again, we're talking to Dr. Taylor Marshall, the author of Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Uh, listening to you um, laying out the negative effects of you know, the cultural changes since Vatican II, uh, one thought I had is there are other factors involved in this. We have this explosion of instant communication and a plethora of supposed truth that people take all at face value, that no one engages them, that we probably can't lay at the feet of Vatican II. Those are cultural changes. Do the two intertwine? Is there, I think... uh, correlation between that cultural change and how Vatican II was implemented?
2: Yes, I, I think you know one of the important parts, uh, the, the thesis of this book, Infiltration, is, is that it's not about Vatican II. I think it's too easy to say Vatican II is the reason why we have these problems. The thesis of the book is that Vatican II is Is certainly one of the big dominoes down the, you know, when you flick a domino and it causes the chain reaction, it's certainly a major one, but in order for us to fully understand it, we need to go back much, much further, over a hundred years beyond 1965. So there is a, there's a cultural change. that's already happening in the 1800s that the popes are recognizing, but there's also a change within the church with regard to faith and morals. And I agree, you know, we had the, the, uh, the rise of the birth control pill. We had the legalization of contraception. We had the sexual revolution in the 1960s. We have all kinds of, of cultural revolution uh, revolutionary ideas that are happening. One, and that played a part in it, but one thing about this is, is we see decline really, Across the board, in many different cultures. For example, you see it in South America, you see it in Canada, you see it in America, you see it in France, you see it in the Catholic Church in Sweden, you see it, you know, in the Catholic Church in Hungary. You see it in places where there's communism and capitalism, and you know, first world and third world. So, all different kind of cultural settings, you're still seeing the decline. And the argument of infiltration is the reason for that is because the leadership in the Catholic Church had been compromised for a hundred years already before these enormous tidal waves of cultural revolution happened globally.
1: I find it interesting that uh, what you were talking about, you know, the sexual revolution, the contraception and all that, that we still see every once in a while the Catholic Church shooting a shot across the bow of culture with, for instance, human Vitae, which... Paul VI was not expected to put forth. Uh, The church was fully convinced that uh, the Catholic Church was going to come down on the side of the cultural change, especially with Paul VI as the pope. So do you see that as a positive indication that, you know, there is still— the influence of the Holy Spirit guiding the Church. Absolutely, absolutely. This, this
2: book is, is the, the furthest thing from this book. And as you as you read it, and as you read the last two chapters, is we cannot leave the Catholic Church. It is the Ark of Salvation. All right. It is it is the means of salvation. We cannot. We have no option to leave. The Holy Spirit is still in the Catholic Church. There are still popes. There are still cardinals. There are still bishops. We are called to be faithful children of the Catholic Church. So, yes, if anyone should hear the saying, well, the Catholic Church went off the rails, forget about it. That is not, uh, certainly not my message, certainly not the thesis of this book. The Holy Spirit is there. Yeah, you see it, Humanae Vitae uh, in 1968. That's a bright spot. There are other bright spots as you move through, you know, the 1980s and the 1990s and the 2000s the Holy spirit is still at work. It is complicated. It is difficult. We are still in a battle. We still need to rebuild, but the Catholic church is the Catholic church and, and Christ promised that until the very end of time till he comes again. So the solution to this is to remain Catholic, to remain in the church, to continue to attend mass every single Sunday and every single Holy day of obligation, but also, and this is at the end of the book, I kind of, here's a little spoiler to Turn to the traditional norms of Catholicism. The traditional norms of piety and devotion are praying the rosary every day. You know, our Lady of Fatima, you know, our lady came off her throne in 1917, came down to earth and told us, you guys need to be praying five decades of the rosary every day. So we need to be doing that. You know, we need to be going to confession regularly, not once a year, not every five years. We should be trying to go every month, every two months. Uh, we should be getting a mass early and praying, staying after mass, praying for our loved ones. We should be doing the novenas. Um, Lent shouldn't just be giving up chocolate. We should be like our, our ancestors, truly fasting. You know, you should, have, you should have lost a few pounds during Lent. You know, you should have really been giving up um, food, abstinence, uh, fasting, penance. So these are, the, these are what our, our ancestors did as Catholics. And it became unfashionable to do some of these things in, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. You know, Stations of the Cross, not everybody was doing that. That kind of got forgotten. Novenas, those were forgotten. Uh, the Rosary, the Family Rosary, uh, these kind of things were, were forgotten. And it's time for us to realize those were our weapons. Those were our shields. Those were our swords. That's what, that's what protected our kids and our grandkids. And when we abandoned those devotions, uh, we, we began to take major spiritual hits from, from the demons. And we began to see our children leave the church, our grandchildren leave the church. We saw our priests attacked. We saw our priests lose faith, maybe lose their vocation and leave the priesthood. We need to rally back to these traditional norms of Catholic piety and we need to do them to, to strengthen our children and our grandchildren and our priests and our religious and our nuns, our pope, our cardinals. We we have to rally and provide spiritual cover so that we can rebuild our Church and that we can say, yes, we are the Catholic Church. We're proud to be the Catholic Church. We feel safe in the Catholic Church.
0: Hey, Taylor, it's Thaddeus. Um, I wanted to ask Deacon Mike's question a little bit differently, just to clarify what you were saying. Um. Is it, is it fair to say that you're arguing in this book that if you take away the, the infiltration um, aspect, that had the Catholic Church remained the Catholic Church that it was in, say, 1800, um, that it would have withstood the cultural, technological, economic um, changes of the Industrial Revolution communication revolution the world wars etc is that is that kind of what what you're arguing that um it, it was this abandonment of traditional catholic um, norms and practice
2: i you know i'm 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 not a seer i'm not a prophet so i don't know i
0: know what, i'm asking you happens, a what if question yeah
2: but i suspect i suspect that we would have endured it and been much stronger and much more successful. Because remember, from AD 33 to 19, pick a date, 60, 68, we endured cultural revolutions, political changes, regime changes, mm-hmm. the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, persecutions, catacombs, uh, Constantine, the Holy Roman Empire, the Investiture con- all kinds of major crises happened in the history of the church, and we've never seen the amount of spiritual damage that we have that we have seen in the last 60 years. The the amount of decline we've never seen that previously. Uh, so my suspicion is we would have, we probably would have taken a lot of hits because this is, you know, what happened in the 1900s was a major cultural shift. No doubt about it. The biggest cultural shift in, in human history. That being said, I think if we had had been more vigilant and more on guard, and we had listened to what our lady said at La Salette, we had listened to what our lady said at Fatima, we had listened to what Pius the Ninth, Leo the Thirteenth, Pius the had taught, I think we would have been much much stronger and we wouldn't be facing the problems we face today.
0: So w- that that's really interesting. So with with that said, um you know, clearly the, the message of Fatima, the message of, of La Salette's not being suppressed, it's being advocated, it's being um, disseminated throughout the Church as those things happen. Um, why, didn't, why didn't the laity, why didn't the priests, um, the bishops, listen, as you're saying, to those messages of Fatima and La Salette? Is, does that then go back to the, the infiltration piece,
2: yeah the, remember the people have been taught to not trust the supernatural, not trust the miraculous for for over a hundred years. People themselves are becoming secularized they're becoming more humanist they are imbibing on ideals that were not Catholic. so when these things begin to come, they aren 't resisted. This is why you see in the 1960s just a, a, a almost a whole wholehearted acceptance
0: oh i 'm sorry i 'm sorry, I was asking more about. Let's say shortly after the apparition at Fatima, um, and in yes. in the early parts of the twentieth century, clearly those it was being listened to at that time. Um, why why did that not not continue or not um, have a sufficient enough impact on the Catholic laity in their in their piety? Is that is that kind of what you're what you're driving at?
2: Uh, I'm sorry, you're saying that what at say in 1960, why did the laity not continue? Is that the question?
0: No, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not making myself clear. Um, why do you think that, even though the message of Fatima, the message of La Salette, was, was disseminated and um, encouraged by the Popes at the time that those apparitions occurred, and in the decades following, that um, the Catholic laity didn't, didn't listen to those, to those warnings enough or, or properly?
2: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, for example, with Fatima, you know, there's there is a bit of a controversy on the third secret, and it was, you know, allegedly supposed to be opened by the Pope in 1960, but John the tw- John the 23rd chose not to do that. I think that's one maybe part of the element. Um, but I'm I'm not sure exactly that the message of Fatima continued to be uh, spread and promoted in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I'm, I'm not exactly sure that. You would have, if you were in a seminary, like I've talked to so many priests who were in the seminary in the 70s and 80s, and they were told, you know, don't pray the rosary. They were praying the rosary sure. uh, in their rooms quietly. So this this shows that, you know, within the seminaries, within the training of priests, the message of Fatima, which is pray the rosary every day, is is being suppressed. I, I hope that's answering the question. I'm not exactly sure.
0: Uh, no, no, I think I, I think I think it does. I think it's a com- I think it's a complicated question because you're trying to to guess at why people aren't aren't doing something.
1: <laughs> Again, we're talking yeah. to Doctor Taylor Marshall about infiltration, the plot to destroy the church from within. Doctor Marshall, we're ending. Uh, we're coming to the end of the interview, and I don't want to do that before we have a chance to talk about the end of your book because I found it. Yes. to be the most enlightening part of the whole book, while it was interesting to have you make the connections in the history, the way you lay out our options as to how to proceed, and you say, you know, these are all options that we could take, and then you tell us why not. So what are some of these yeah. options that you mention in the your book that some people have chosen but that you don't recommend?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we look around right now and we think, okay, there's all this controversy. There's a lot of lay people, even priests who just, you know, they say, I'm kind of embarrassed to be a Catholic. When I get together at Thanksgiving and people say, oh yeah, that cardinal who molested all the kids or, you know, your Pope said this, you know, and and what's going on with that? A lot of people just shrink and they're like, man, being a Catholic in 2019 is, is, is a little bit embarrassing at times. And so what are the options? And I say, well, you could just, you could become an atheist and say, okay, I just reject all of it. Christianity, Catholicism was just this experiment that kind of ran off the fumes of the Roman empire. and Now it's over. So I just reject it. Or you could just say, I'll be a Protestant. It'll just be me, Jesus, and the Bible. And I'll get rid of cardinals and popes and councils and controversy and liturgy. And I'll just, it'll be me, Jesus, and my Bible. So that's one option. I think the, you know, as Catholics, we realize the problem with that because we believe in a sacramental faith, an incarnational faith. We need the priests. We need the sacraments. So that's off the table. So then some people say, OK, well, I like the sacraments. I like the priesthood. I like the bishops. Apostolic succession. But I just don't want these cardinals and popes anymore. So they become Eastern Orthodox. That's an, that's an option. I'm saying it's not a good option. And in the book, I have more time so I explain why all these options don't work. And then some people take a really radical position. They say, okay, I'm, I want to be Catholic. I just don't like this pope or these popes, so I'll be a set of a contest. I'll just reject all popes since 1958. Okay, so that's, that's an option. I explain why that's, that's actually not a good option either. And so I say the option left to you, if you believe the Catholic faith, but you feel a little bit uncomfortable about things right now, is what I call the recognize and resist position. I recognize the Catholic Church, I recognize the Pope, I recognize the Cardinals, the bishops, the priests, the deacons, I recognize all of it. But where I see error and where I see immorality and I see compromise, I will resist in those particular places. So if I'm in a seminary and I see immorality, I'm going to resist and report that. If I see abuse in my parish or if I hear heretical sermons, Heretical presentations, I will resist there. I'm not going to reject everything. I'm only going to resist in these places if and when I see them. And so that's the, I think, the position uh, of our time that is to, to love the church, to be part of the church, to recognize the church, to pray, to fast for the church, for our Pope, for our, our hierarchy, to really love the church for the sake of Jesus Christ, to be part of the body of Christ, and to suffer. Uh, during this time, but also to, to, to resist and to rebuild. And at the end of the book, I take this, this example from, from the Jews in the Old Testament. They're coming back to the Holy Land during the time of the Persians. They were exiled under the Babylonians. And they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And half of them stand with weapons, while the other half of them hold a weapon and a trowel in their hand and begin to rebuild the walls and their enemies are coming and attacking them, and those standing by are protecting the ones who are rebuilding. And I think that's a beautiful um, analogy, an allegory for where we are now. Some of us aren't in a position to rebuild, but we can pray. We can pick up the rosary. We can fast. We can do penance. We can read the Bible. We can catechize. We can teach our kids. And then there's others who can be in the trenches, who can pick up the trowel and begin to rebuild the walls. Maybe these are our priests, maybe these are nuns, bishops, um, lay leaders, lay apologists, Catholic radio. These people are, are rebuilding and we're working together. We're providing cover, but there's an offense and there's a defense. And the key to that story in Ezra and Nehemiah, if you want to go back in the Bible and read it, is that they, everyone, whether they were building a wall or just covering, everyone carried the weapons. And those weapons are The weapons that God gave us, the sacramentals of the church, holy water, holy salt, the rosary, the sign of the cross, the novenas, the feast days, the fast days, all of these things we need to return to. That's going to give us the spiritual cover against the enemies of darkness that we can rebuild the Catholic church.
1: And I wanted to end the interview with something that you mentioned in your book, and it's a quote by Cardinal Ercole Consalvi. Uh, responding to Napoleon Bonaparte's threat to destroy the church. And he said, if in 1800 years we the clergy have failed to destroy the church, do you really think that you'll be able to do it? <laughs> That's right. Uh, That's... I see lots of light at the end of this tunnel. I have known lots of um the young priests coming out of the seminary especially here in the diocese of austin that are orthodox that are devoted to the eucharist that are devoted to praying the rosary i think there is a shift and i think that you know reading your book especially the end of it and uh, the encouragement that we take an active role even if it's just through prayer in redoing the church is extremely helpful
2: Yes, and, and people say, "Why do you always smile? Why are you always so hopeful?" I said, "I am hopeful. Christ wins, and I, I see the shifts just like you see the shifts. There are young great priests. There, there's also older, you know, older priests who are who are coming around and having you know new conversions and new renewals in their priesthood. And there's all sorts of great things happening in the Catholic Church. This will be turned around. Christ and His Blessed Mother love the Church. They're still with us. Uh, we we will see." A rebuilding. We will see again. I think a time of of great spiritual okay. renewal in the Catholic
1: Church. Well, thank you very much for being on the show again. This was Taylor Marshall on Infiltration: The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. I will see you all next week. Uh, Gene uh, Wilhelm will be on the show. Bye.